0: Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Art of Product podcast. I'm your usual host, Derek, and today I am joined by a special guest where together we will, well, announce, one, the news that Static Kit has been acquired. I am joined today by Cole Krumholtz, uh, the founder of Formspree and the one who acquired Static Kit. Welcome, Cole. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. I thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit about you know, the the acquisition, of course, but also dive into your story a little bit. You are also a bootstrapper. You've co-founded a number of other companies over the years. The cool thing is, um, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other through the process, but I actually don't know a ton about your background. So it'll be new to me as well.
1: I think it's pretty exciting. I am a longtime fan of the show, so it's pretty cool to be here. Cool, awesome.
0: To kick us off, how did you get your start into this whole funky, bootstrapped SaaS world? Did you start out as a software developer or a designer, and like, what kind of inspired you to get into the industry? I guess
1: I started off as a software developer. I got my degree in computer science a long time ago. I think when I started working in industry and and working for my first job was for like a multi thousand person company. I pretty early found out that I didn't really like that culture and, and sort of always wanted to branch off and do my own thing. I got lucky at some point, you know, I, I had been working on side projects and I, I kind of started working on this game company. I got some funding. I moved out to San Francisco and was just trying to build, build products doing the sort of classic startup VC sort of approach. At some point I started focusing on developer tools and, uh, I ended up launching, I think, a dozen or so APIs and, and different products around, I would say, the like pre-Jamstack sort of static site, single page app kind of uh, movement. I think, I don't know if you remember Backbone JS, but I actually launched oh, yeah. a company called Backlift, which was specifically like a platform as a service for single page Backbone.js apps, which was uh was a bad idea <laughs> um, well it's crazy to it's crazy to look back on like how much that landscape has
0: changed i mean other things like the back end i feel like hasn't changed nearly as rapidly like rails has been around for like what 18 years now or something right yeah. and people are still using it but you think you think about you know technologies in the front end space and it's like my gosh um you mentioned backbone you instantly date yourself but i was there too you know <laughs> yeah
1: yeah it was interesting. It was definitely interesting trying to build products for that community. I think one of the main things that I learned during that phase is that there are just there's not a single persona for a developer. I mean, I think there's there's a spectrum for sure of of people who are like right on the cutting edge and and working with these, you know, libraries, the MVC libraries at the time which sort of went from, you know, Backbone and Angular and eventually React. And then there's a, a bunch of people who They're more focused on the HTML and CSS. And then there are people who are like hobbyists trying to get stuff done, or, you know, marketers or other professionals that use code in whatever capacity. And they all, they're all developers in a sense. And they all identify, many of them identify as developers. It's interesting trying to pick a a product for a developer without sort of focusing on what kind.
0: That's kind of what I found too. I mean, in building StaticKit. We probably had some some overlap for sure in like the types of customer that would maybe use FormSpree or use Static Kit, but I was definitely like, you know, focusing a lot on React developers and the ones kind of adopting newer sets of technologies. And while those are gaining popularity and and definitely like a, a big you know big factor in the world of front-end development and static sites and stuff there's there's just a whole nother world of people who are using you know jekyll or no static site generator at all and just like flat html files and it's just yeah i found that there's a huge variety of um of different quote-unquote developers right in this space
1: yeah yeah so i guess to, to try and get to how how i got here i built a lot of tools um not a lot of them succeeded we had some success with this uh, brace.io product that I launched around 2013, I think, which was sort of a static site hosting tool. But at that point, I'd been in Silicon Valley for like five years. And I was getting, I was basically a solo founder for a lot of that. And it was just getting tiring to sort of be building my own stuff and not really having like a team around me or like having a, I felt like I, I wasn't really having the impact that I wanted to have. And so I ended up kind of reaching out and finding ways to sort of end that phase of my career, I guess. Um, I, I thought at that point, like I would never come back to startups that I that that was it for me for being a founder. I got a great acqui-hire deal with Squarespace. And I was working there for for three, three and a half years. In that transition, I, I kind of made a deal with uh, with Anthony that that three tools that had been a part of Brace, Formspree, Chartspree, and Gridspree, which were all sort of like little static site um, dynamic tools, that those could be open sourced. And that I could kind of work on them, you know, a couple hours a week on the side. So I did that and, and Formspree continued to grow. And, you know, there was a couple of key contributors that work with me to sort of launch a paid product and to continue to sort of build and maintain that. And over the three and a half years that I was at Squarespace, you know, Formspree just consistently doubled pretty much every year to the point where I was like, this is something I should be focusing on. So I kind of feel like I didn't really set out to be a bootstrap founder. I think it just kind of found me. Formspree sort of pulled me into this this world. So this came out of Brace
0: then yeah. and was Brace a it was a venture backed startup
1: then that that then was acquired or it's complicated. I mean, it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I I did YC and so I had some funding from YC and I During that time, YC was given out 150K, and I was a solo founder. So I had a lot of time to sort of try different ideas. And I think Brace was one of the more successful ones, but I never got a full seed round or anything like that.
0: And so this was part of that tool set. And when you joined Squarespace, they kind of wanted your your talent to work on the Squarespace product and Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily. like take the products that you had built previously and fold them into Squarespace, right? right so so yeah. that's where you could kind of just continue working on them in, in an open source fashion. That's right. Interesting. Huh. Well, that's cool that they that, that was permissible. I know like a lot of people who could kind of go through a an acquisition and kind of lose lose their passion for this stuff that they're working on in their new day job. So I I take it. That was probably a good outlet for you to have while also doing the corporate thing for a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, but I'll be honest, I really wasn't paying attention. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, the team that, that ended up sort of being the main contributors and turned into my co founders when I, when I left and we formed a company, they were the main driving force behind it for those years while I was, while I was at Squarespace and they also were working on it part time. It really started off with just like a team of of folks that were all kind of involved in other projects and were contributing to it but it takes time <laughs> it takes time yeah. for yeah. it depends obviously but in this case it it took us you know several years to to see the community and the and the user base grow to the point where it could sustain us Interesting so you're working on this as an open source
0: project and were there people basically attracted to the project and wanting to use it but didn't want to go through the hassle of spinning up their own server to to run it themselves and were kind of like asking for a hosted version of it is that kind of how the the impetus for like turning it into a a SaaS product came about
1: um i think we always thought that you know that that would be true i mean i didn't see people being like hey i wish this thing was just we basically had a hosted version of it from the start so people were using that I mean, I think it was just an experiment. We just, like, tried charging for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we said, you know, Here, here's some additional features you can unlock if you pay for it. And people did that, despite the fact that it also was open source. And we had, uh, you know, we had instructions on how to deploy it onto Heroku yourself. People just didn't want didn't to hassle with that.
0: Now, I, see, I do see a lot of other companies... Or have seen over the years a lot of companies trying to like take this approach of like, you know, some some call it like the open core model or just kind of open source as marketing. You see large examples like GitLab doing this, right? And smaller examples, I think, Fathom Analytics for a while like was an open source project that also had a, a paid tier, and I think they've I think they've since kind of wound that down. And you also kind of wound down the the open maintaining the open source version of the product. So like, do you feel like it was successful would you recommend experimenting with that or kind of what was your takeaway from
1: from like trying to you know use that as a marketing channel i guess i guess i think it's kind of a mixed bag i mean i think in our case it's hard to say what the actual impact of it being open source was i mean i feel like you know in the early days it was kind of our only choice so we weren't doing it because we thought there would be a big marketing upside I think at first, you know, people love the product. Um, we got a lot of mentions and word of mouth sharing, um, you know, partly because it was sort of the first, uh, I think the first service that sort of took this approach around static sites and forms. But I'm not sure if it's because we were open source or because we were free or because we were new that that sort of drove that initial excitement and word of mouth. Uh, but I do know that like that reputation of being free and open source was sort of something that we had to fight against you know if you saw a lineup of forum service providers you know later around 2018 you know we would be in that lineup as the sort of budget pick kind of you know that's clearly not what we wanted our brand to be especially since we were investing so much in our infrastructure and and building out you know we were building out these native plugins and just trying to create this very streamlined experience where it was super easy to to add, you know, additional functionality to your form. So, we were fighting against that perception. I think the other thing that that we had to fight against were competitors. Some examples of of competitors just like took our code and didn't change fonts and didn't change, you know, much and were able to compete with us. But I think the main competitor was really ourselves. You know, we had our own open source product. And when we tried to add features or, you know, appeal to bigger customers and, and put an appropriate price tag on that, there was always that competing option that they could fork our code base and and sort of do it themselves. We just decided that that wasn't sustainable and we needed to go back to, to the closed source model.
0: I kind of did something similar with Level back when I was building out a couple of years ago. And I did find that, you know, there was definitely some some marketing benefit in the, at least in, in awareness, right? It just the fact that it's an open source code base uh, kind of made it novel inherently and, and, and attracted people to it a bit. But I also learned quickly that it's a whole, it's a whole nother thing to like maintain this community version. Like you have to, you have to think so much about like, well, is the deployment experience still smooth and working well and people are filing feature requests in github issues right and like (laughs) or submitting pull requests and you're like "Uh, i don't know if this is really on the roadmap i don't know if i really want to merge this but you know it's like kind of to me made it really clear that like open source projects are kind of their own their own beast where community wants to take ownership of it in a sense especially if it's a successful one right then then you have people wanting to actively contribute and that's great for like you know Things like frameworks, like Rails, you know, where, where the community can really come to a consensus about what what's important to them and, and build it. But oftentimes I feel like that the desires of an open source community doesn't necessarily align with, like, building a commercial product that you're monetizing and you're figuring out strategy in that res- respect. So. You touched on competition a little bit. I mean, and you guys were very early um, into this like whole form backend as a service category, I guess. But as you know, as static sites have gotten more popular, I was one of them, right? I was one of those competitors, and and there's a bunch of other ones. And I what I discovered is like a whole range of you know um, kind of built in a weekend type of competitors. It seems like on the surface a pretty simple type of thing to build, and then of course once you get into it, you learn just how many considerations there are spam being a big one of them right yeah
1: um did you run into that
0: um a little bit but not uh i don't know if static it got to the scale where like it was really in the crosshairs of spam Mm -hmm. bots Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) yeah we do have some some protections in place to kind of intelligently um look for that and i think it's based on kind of my analysis of traffic and submissions it seems to be doing pretty well but i know that i would have to get a lot more sophisticated if the product grew a lot more you know and i'm
1: sure you guys have had to deal with that right for sure (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's like (laughs) it's a huge part of our of our technology is is about how we how we deal with that it also kind of shaped i think our company and our product early on i mean we from the very beginning i think we were very easy to sort of target and i think we we've tried to sort of you know, look at the surface area of the product and really button up every possible vector that, that somebody could use, you know, to basically use us as a tool for spam. And sometimes that, that, that has been frustrating to our users, you know, they're gonna fill out these CAPTCHAs and they gotta, you know, even starting an account, you've gotta, you know, you sign in, you get an email that's got an, a CAPTCHA on it. You know, so we're, we're doing as much as we can to sort of keep the, the traffic, um, you know, the spam traffic minimal
0: that's a thankless chunk of work i feel like too because it's not necessarily a it's not necessarily a selling point to people i mean Mm -hmm. if they under if the customer is sophisticated enough to understand that like no spam is actually a major problem on a service like this and also on a service like drip that i Mm -hmm. (laughs) ran the technical side of for years i had to deal with my fair share of uh, you know just doing war with spammers basically but it's like Customers just expect that, like, yeah, I expect your service not to have spam issues. So just do what it takes to make that be. And that yeah. actually represents <laughs> a huge body of work. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> and one of my perceptions has been because there's so many people trying to compete in this space and, and, I think naively just like slapping a price tag on their service that's maybe you know half of what the going rate for the well established services are. it can I imagine it can be quite frustrating to to see that and and have to just deal with that noise. I mean so how have you what has your approach been over these years to like do you just ignore the competition do you do you keep an eye on what people are doing and saying and
1: and how do you like not let it derail you? I guess if the question is like how do you keep competitors from becoming a distraction? I would say. Step one is don't don't start another form company. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're gonna have some some of that distraction, regardless uh, in this yeah. industry or this space or whatever you want to call it. I think generally when it comes to like competition, I, I don't think it necessarily helps to ignore it. Like I think it's it's all about picking the competition that you want to focus on. You can pick competitors and 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 spend your time worrying about them. And if you pick ones that are kind of the smaller ones that, you know, that in a way aren't really pushing the changing the field, you know, you're kind of going to be lowering your, your vision, your sort of target, what, what you're focusing on. But if you pick, you know, competitors that are sort of bigger players and, and you know, that helps you motivate you to sort of continue to, to compete at a higher level, I think that can be constructive.
0: Yeah, you guys have been around for a while and you have, so you, you guys don't disclose your revenue numbers publicly, but I think it's like fair to say that you are profitable. You, you're you able to work on this full time and, you know, at your, at your scale, it's, you're at a, a comfortable level of revenue where it's like, you guys are in default alive state for sure. And can, can be in it for the long haul. You and I have also had conversations about like, you know, how you define success. I think you had mentioned something to me of like, well, I don't think we're successful yet you're a bootstrapper. Um, and I think most of us understand the the feeling that like it is not moving fast enough or it took way longer than I was expecting it to. But like, how do you think about that? How do you define success?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it totally depends on your frame of reference. I feel like when I said we're not successful yet, I'm kind of speaking from the perspective of like my old, you know, goals going out to San Francisco and kind of being in that milieu or whatever, the luxury of a bootstrap company is that you, you get to choose what success is. And I've seen Formspree as uh, sort of an extension of my career. And so I've evaluated my success there as, you know, in sort of career framing. So like, am I growing as a, as an engineer, as a, as a leader, am I learning, am I making a reasonable you know amount of compensation? Is, is there good room for, for that to grow? Can I support the lifestyle that I'm interested in? I think for me, you know, using those metrics, I feel like we are successful already. And that's what makes it sustainable is that, you know, we're not, we're not depending on, you know, the next thing to break our, in our favor for us to be happy. We're comfortable right now. And, and that allows us to sort of think longer term. Um, and it allows us to, to sort of continue to, to not, you know, stress, in, in some ways that I think, you know, if you're trying to meet 30, 40% month over month growth goals or, you know, those other things that, that you end up having to do, if you're depending on, you know, investors, it really changes your, your expectations. And I guess the other thing that makes it successful is that I just love this work. Like I love being the CEO of a bootstrap, relatively small team. I think it just gives me like, kind of like this super interesting access to so many other different facets of building a company. I mean, I get to, to kind of think at a strategic level, I get to problem solve at a, at a tactical level, you know, I get to like try these different fields that I am obviously not good at and then realize that I need to hire somebody who's going to be way better at it. And then I get to see them excel and, and be way better than me and, and sort of in a way just like live vicariously through other people that i get to work with i'm a former naval officer i i joined the navy after college to to see the world or whatever and and i feel like being a founder of a company in, in a way is sort of like the most adventure that i can have while still sitting behind a laptop <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it yeah, yeah
0: i like that yeah so you bought static kit indeed why and what's your vision <laughs> for for like <laughs> for the next? I guess the next chapter of
1: Form Yeah, yeah. Well, first, I, I mean, I loved static Kit when it launched. I really loved the vision um, of of sort of you know the idea that there are a lot of of sort of common you know dynamic tools or functions or components or whatever you want to call it that that a lot of websites need, especially static websites. Back in the initial days of Formspree, when I also had you know, Chartspree and and, and Gridspree, which was basically like a Google Sheets backed um, sort of database thing. This idea of a, of a set of tools around, you know, static sites or around the sort of Jamstack type sites resonates with me a lot. And I think the thing that scared me the most about StaticKit when it first came out was just how thoughtful the execution was and how the developer experience was really you know, honing in on that specific, I guess, persona or workflow that I think a lot of developers prefer. So, and that was something that we just weren't able to focus on and hadn't been investing in at the time to me. Like I've, I've always been a huge fan. Um, and I see it as like a way of, you know, basically being able to offer a set of just like well-crafted, well-thought through already battle-tested tools to that side of the of the developer community. And in a way it sort of like rounds out our offering. We have the the HTML you know first workflow, the one that we kind of launched in what, twenty thirteen or whatever. And we recently launched this thing called form button, which is more of a widget for for you know people that don't even want to really, you know, I think it's like a very low code kind of approach. It's just a copy paste thing that you can you can make some adjustments to. And then this on the other hand is a very like full developer experience that fits in with a CLI kind of focus workflow that kind of gives us this like complete offering that, that can really satisfy kind of any developers workflow. This is for us like, you know, a big step forward towards a general goal of being kind of the best form tool uh, for you know any developer that that wants to add a form to their website, that's kind of our our goal. I think anyone who's listened to this podcast has
0: heard you know heard me talk enough about kind of the static kit journey and and some of the the highs and the lows and some of the struggles that I encountered in like trying to you know scale this quickly enough to become a viable business to support me and all that. But you know I definitely did see and continue to see a lot of interest in kind of the developer centric tooling. And so when you and I started. Started talking, you know, you basically kind of shared your vision in, in the same way, and it sounded like you were you know thinking about it the right way. And so, a big piece of this is bringing the the kind of React library and the the CLI and the way you know the version controlled um, way to kind of declaratively you know specify your form resources and stuff like that. All that now is is becoming part of Forms Free, which is really really awesome. And then you also have this this battle tested backend that can is prepared to, um, you know, to deal with any spam that may come through and all that kind of stuff. So it just, it just made sense. It just seemed like a right, a good pairing, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think one of the really exciting things here is that, you know, we've been working on a set of these tools already, you know, the sort of plugins that we have, you know, Stripe, you know, Airtable, a, a lot of different tools that you can combine with a form to create, you know, that sort of dynamic functionality that, that that's a part of every website. I see an opportunity here where we can basically just really take your idea and run with it, and add a lot more of these sort of um, you know functions, uh, plugins, actions to expand the capabilities of a form um, using that workflow that I think you've really honed. So I think the next few months are going to be super exciting because we can really take this this workflow and and make it a lot more capable. That's pretty awesome.
0: The Jamstack, you know, is kind of a newer a newer concept that Netlify coined, you know, after, well, after you guys were already already kind of in this Jamstack ecosystem before it was called that, right? But I mean, there, there's, so there's a lot of effort and, and venture capital dollars, you know, kind of behind this this movement of like static sites, static pre-generation um, as the, the scalable way to build websites. Do you see this like becoming a bigger trend, you know, over the next five, 10 years? Like, do you think this will be a strong alternative to wordpress and kind of the more monolithic you know content management system driven way of building websites or like kind of what's your
1: you know if you're looking out into the future what do you see you know i think it's here and i think we are excited about this space because it's already built a fair amount of traction and and has i think a dedicated community of developers that really love this workflow and and it has a ton of real tangible benefits to it i don't really want to weigh in on the like Jamstack versus sort of lamp stack kind of idea, but I feel like it's not going anywhere for sure. And and to me, we're kind of more interested in building tools that meet developers where they are and sort of provide them with the best workflow we can given what they're doing. And and so I guess I'm less concerned really about like whether Jamstack is gonna win or whatever, and more just like, is this a growth area? And I definitely I definitely believe that, you know, you look at like Vercel and you look at, you know, what, what Netlify is doing. And these are companies that have really done an incredible job of making, you know, the developer experience magic in in a lot of ways. And, and that's also what we're kind of drawn to is, is to kind of be a part of creating magical experiences for developers, but not too much magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just right yeah. Just the right amount. Just the right amount. Just uh <laughs> just a bit of magic. <laughs> That's good. That's good.
0: Well, awesome, man. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see, you know, where you take it and you know, to see Static Kit kind of reborn into, you know, a different company, but the vision carried on. Um it'll be really uh
1: really awesome to see. I'm very excited about the future and uh I'm excited about the present too. I mean, it's it's a good time to be uh, building developer tools. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Cole. Uh, where can people keep up with you
0: if they want to follow along with, with the stuff you're working on?
1: You know, Formspree.io is our homepage, and we're also on Twitter at Formspree. So you can check us out there. I don't know. I'm at Code, my Twitter handle, where I chronicle my battle with uh, curly braces. But, there
0: you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks again, Cole. And uh, the notes for this show can be found at artofproductpodcast.com and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye.